My name is Ben Jackson. I'm one of the History Fellows here at, at University College. Uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to this year's uh, University College Clement Attlee Memorial Lecture. Clement Attlee, as I'm, as I'm sure you all know, was an undergraduate at University College uh, between 1901 and 1904. Uh, and it's a particular pleasure to welcome Mark Steers to give this year's lecture, uh, because Mark, Mark and I actually started this lecture series in 2011, when the first lecture was given by John Crudus, who's in fact with us this, this evening. Uh, now Mark is someone who's worked in both the academic world and in practical politics. Uh, he was Professor of Political Theory here at Oxford and Fellow in Politics at UNIV. Uh, before that, he was a lecturer in politics at Cambridge. But Mark, someone who's also spent time at the, at the coalface of actually trying to make change happen. Uh, he spent time as a, as a visiting fellow at the think tank, the IPPR, and worked as the chief speechwriter for Ed Miliband when he was leader of the opposition, and is now chief executive of the New Economics Foundation, which is a think tank that's trying to uh, explore ways in which uh, progressive change can happen. Now, I think an abiding theme of Mark's work, uh, which takes us to the topic of today's lecture, is democracy and how to root political structures and in everyday life. And of course, that's a topic of tremendous significance right now as the inauguration gets underway, literally as we're, we're sitting here talking. So I think there's no one, no one better to hear from uh, about where we find ourselves now uh, politically. And uh, Mark's topic today is called uh, Really Taking Control. Can democracy defeat populism and what happens if it doesn't? And Mark's going to speak for about 45 minutes and then there'll be time for questions and discussion afterwards. So let's welcome Mark. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ben, uh, and thank you so much, everyone, for coming because the uh, inauguration speech is presumably happening right now and it's. uh, Really very nice that you've chosen to hear this instead. <laughs> well, it's, um, it's particularly good, of course, to be here back at uh, UNIV and to see so many friendly faces uh, in the audience and perhaps one or two not-so-friendly ones uh, who'll get their own back for a bad tutorial or an unreturned essay or three uh, in, the, in the questions. Um, and it's a particular pleasure to be here giving the Clement Attlee Memorial Lecture and not just because I've attended so many fabulous uh, Attlee lectures myself, um, John Crudus's, Francis O'Grady's, Rachel Reeves, and last year from Arnie Graf, um, but also because Clement Attlee has been a hero for me uh, for ages now, um, probably, in fact, for too long, because it's testament to a genuinely misspent youth that Attlee first became a hero uh, when I was about 16 or 17. Uh, Back then I found a copy of his autobiography, As It Happened, on my dad's bookshelf at home. And I read it not knowing what I was going to find. And I was hooked, because I found all kinds of things in that book. It was the first time I'd read anything on the nature of liberty, and especially on the question of why the liberty of the wealthy always seems to be given priority over the liberty of the poor. I was also mesmerised by Attlee's amazingly gentle way of describing the realities of electoral politics and especially the realities of defeat. Uh, There's a wonderful little chapter about when he was unceremoniously turfed out of Downing Street by his old foe Winston Churchill in 1951 and the chapter bears the title, I Become Leader of the Opposition Again. (laughs) But perhaps most of all, I was sucked in by the beautiful and often deeply nostalgic pictures that Attlee paints of the past. And especially of his own past and the Oxford of his youth when he was, as Ben says, an undergraduate here at UNIV. 
As with so many early 20th century socialists, there was a longing in Attlee for things which were lost by modernisation and industrialisation, things which he believed could never come back. So just as John Ruskin had pined for the quiet of the rural valleys of England, as Tom Stoppard puts it, before the railway came, the elderly Attlee dreamt of the Oxford of his younger days, a time when dons had space to debate literature in the common room, when students raced across quadrangles clutching their essays, and when, as Attlee puts it, there were no cars in Longwall Street. (laughs) For Attlee thought, again like most socialists of his day, that history marched in a particular direction. What was lost was lost, both for ill and for good. Indeed, that's why he called his most famous political manifesto Let Us Face the Future in 1945 because it would have been entirely inconceivable of him to write something called Let Us Go Back to the Past. But we probably don't think like that anymore. We know, I think, that the future doesn't just march on, progressing in one ineluctable direction. It zigzags. It moves backwards and forwards and sideways. And how do we know that? Well, there are no cars on Longwall Street anymore. Or at least not very many. Now that's a reversal that Attlee would have found very hard to believe, but would, I think, have delighted him. But we're sadly also reminded this week because of a different part of Attlee's past re-emerging amongst us. One that he would have been equally surprised to see back, but which he would be much less pleased to see return, and that is the populist right. For Attlee and his political generation, the defining struggle of his adult life was the fight against fascism. Now, we easily forget that now because we're wrapped up in the myths and the stories of beverage and the NHS and the welfare state. But Attlee's real fight was far darker. His was a struggle to maintain parliamentary democracy against those who would replace it with plebiscite and dictatorship. It was a struggle to protect the legal rights and freedoms of all individuals (coughs) against those who said that the interests of the state should always take priority. It was a struggle to maintain the tolerance of the glorious revolution, the English faith in eccentricity, the passionate commitment to the possibility of discovering a truly common good, against those who thought that politics was about forging an order in xenophobia, anti-Semitism, racism or exclusion. Is it too much to say that these struggles which were Attlee's and those of his generation's might soon become the struggles of our political generation once again. Now, it is early days, of course. Perhaps the troubles will just fall away. But probably not. So it's my argument today, the day, in fact the hour, of Donald Trump's inauguration as President of the United States, that there are good reasons to believe we're confronted by a moment of potentially historic importance right now. A moment that those of us who think of ourselves as on the left have been too slow to recognise is coming, and to which we are, I believe, currently shockingly ill-equipped to know how to respond. In the next few years, although prediction is a dangerous game, as most of us discovered in various elections and referenda, right-wing populism will, I believe, challenge the established norms of our social, political and economic order in a way that we simply haven't seen for decades. And this lecture is about what we will have to do as well as what we will have to think if we're going to have a chance to meeting the challenge of populism head-on. So let's kick off. Today, the shock of Trumpism is fresh upon us. 
and rightly so. I was in my uh, a guest room here in Univ just before the lecture, uh, glued to Twitter as I usually am at about four o'clock in the afternoon, uh, and the images are already coming through of the passing of power from one generation to another, but also clearly from one ideological persuasion to another. But earlier in this week, there was a distinctly British version of what I believe is the same phenomenon. In a her distinctly understated way, and largely as a result of forces entirely beyond her own volition, the Prime Minister ripped up what was left of the post-war settlement. And I want to dwell just a little on what was lost and what has replaced it. First, for the vast majority of the period since the Second World War, political debate in Britain has hinged most of all on how we secure economic success in a way that will benefit the majority of the population. Should inflation be the target, or overall growth, or regional prosperity, or real living standards? Those have been the subjects of political contestation and debate. Those are the issues upon which general elections have turned. Those have been the arguments that undergraduates and graduates in this university have had. But now, the Prime Minister tells us, none of that prevails. And the thing which matters more than anything else, which takes priority over any of those issues, is control of immigration. Everything else, the economic well-being of the nation as measured by any metric, is subservient to the commitment to controlling immigration. Second, for the vast majority of the period since the Second World War, political debate in Britain has also included the question of how we secure peace, prosperity and collaboration between the nations just over the Channel, the nations with whom we have warred for most of our recorded history. Now, attitudes to the European Union itself, of course, have waxed and waned. But the desire to avoid conflict, not just military, but also economic and cultural conflict, has constrained the tendencies of all countries to seek to beggar their neighbour. That's what the post-war period has been about. But now, of course, the Daily Mail can portray the Prime Minister trampling on the European flag and the Times. The paper of record has a headline... May to EU, give us a fair deal or you will be crushed. More than a dozen times in her speech, the Times' columnist Matt Chorley wrote, with undisguised glee the day following the speech, the Prime Minister talked about her friends across the Channel, telling them how much she wanted their countries to succeed, the hope of buttering them up to give us a better deal. It doesn't ring true. Third, For the vast majority of the period since the Second World War, political debate has acknowledged those truths laid out in this college by William Beveridge, that the country cannot succeed unless it pools risk amongst its citizens, protecting those who are in need, sharing the benefits and burdens of a modern economy, and subjecting corporations to socially and eventually environmentally desirable constraints. Now we're told that if the European Union does not give Britain the deal it wants, then we will openly adopt a wholly new economic model, in the Chancellor's words. One that seeks openly to undercut our former partners, attracting capital into the country by removing it from social obligations, shredding regulation, and presumably beggaring not only our neighbours, but the people of our own country in the process. And fourth, let us remember that all of this has come about not as the direct result of a general election, 
with a programme debate contested and amended in Parliament, but it has come about as the result of a plebiscite, the campaign for which was characterised by misinformation, fear and rage. This is, friends, a truly parlous state of affairs. It's a moment unlike any that I can remember in my own lifetime, and I've seen enough political defeat to last many. A moment, I believe, that historians, political scientists, economists, almost everyone else who studies in places like this, will debate for generations to come. And then I was thinking about it, putting it in that tutorial context, and I was thinking, what is the question that BPG tutors will ask in future generations? Well, surely they will ask... What was done about it? What was the response? And most of all, if I were that tutor, I would ask, where was the opposition? Because, and let's be brutally honest here, nobody in our political world currently has a plausible alternative to the strategy outlined by Theresa May earlier this week. The Liberal Democrats see a political opening, and they will rally to their cause a number of the 48% who voted Remain, and who are most disconsolate about what is happening. But they won't prevail politically, and they won't be able to secure their second referendum. Labour, well, Labour is utterly at sea, suggesting literally at the same time that Theresa May's speech was a major step forward, reflecting the party's own priorities, that was Keir Starmer's phrase, and that it puts the country in imminent danger, that was Jeremy Corbyn's phrase. And the manifold campaign groups and other civil society organisations that attract the energy of those who have stepped away from party politics, especially the energy, I think, of many younger people, they do have a sort of heroic determination to campaign, but they find it very difficult to make a general argument as opposed to an argument that might resonate powerfully beyond their own narrow constituency and have headway with the public as a whole. The people who campaign today in the Bridges Not Walls banner uh, reveals uh, noble in their aspirations, probably not reaching deep into Middle England with their arguments. So what does all this mean? Well, I think we can define our moment. (coughs) Our moment is this. The economic, social and cultural fundamentals that have shaped post-war Britain, restraining us in our worst moments and propelling us forward in our best moments, are being turned upside down. And there's currently nothing anyone seems to be able to do about it. And so this is our challenge. How can we build an alternative that understands the pressures that have led our country to this point, but that traces a different series of steps forward, so that we can restore the well-being of citizens, the health of our common life, and tolerance of plurality and different backgrounds to the core of our political debate? Thinking about those questions, thinking about that issue, I think you could soon see that although there are many reasons why lots of different people disagree about the way forward, one reason that there isn't is disagreement on the diagnosis. Putting that another way, the fundamental problem that has led us to where we are now, I think is widely seen and widely understood. Putting that another way, it's widely understood that the forces which pushed many to vote for Brexit and now to rally to its cause, have their origins in the structural failings of our society and our economy. Failings which were revealed so spectacularly in the financial crisis of 2008. But let me just summarise this diagnosis nonetheless, even though most of us probably agree with it already. 
In order to sustain itself, capitalism needs social constraints. That's the lesson we should all have learned from Karl Polanyi by now. As Adam Tooze recently summarised, Polanyi told us that in the absence of proper constraint, quote, capitalism destroys its own foundations. It undermines the family unit upon which the reproduction of labour depends. It consumes nature. It commodifies money, which actually needs a foundation of social trust on which to function. For its own good, as well as for everyone else's, capitalism needs a political check. And as Tooze continues summarising Polanyi, what 2008 events seem to have demonstrated is that constraints like that no longer function effectively. And as a result, people are not protected from the worst of capitalism and they do not feel able to benefit from capitalism's best. The endlessly destructive power of the City of London, the decline of local economies, the despoilation of our environment, the de-skilling of the workforce, the alienation of communities, all bear witness to this fundamental fact. Capitalism no longer has the constraints it needs to succeed on its own terms, let alone on anybody else's. And that's a powerful explanation, I believe, for why a large number of our fellow citizens, perhaps people here today, were attracted to the call for change back in June, even the risky change characterised by Brexit. Now, again, we can debate it, but to me this seems unarguable. But if people largely agree on that diagnosis, then disagreement clearly intensifies as soon as you turn to the question of cure. And at the core of that disagreement is, I think, the Brexit question itself. Now, for some, organisations like the European Union have long been part of the problem and not part of the solution. On this view... Far from enabling societies to constrain capital, as we need, the European Union has acted as an advocate for footloose capital. It's deregulated more effectively than it has regulated. It's constrained social and political responses to injustice more than encouraged social justice. It's acted on the side of those with access to power and resource, not on the side of those who lack power or resource. Probably the most eminent uh, scholar of this view, Wolfgang Streeck, puts it very crudely, very simply in these terms. The European Union is a formidable neoliberal rationalisation machine. And the trauma of the people, not only of Greece, but of southern Europe and much of the post-industrial north, Streeck argues, stands testament to that. And as a result... What must be required is not to go back into the European fold, but to embrace the return to the nation. Democracy, Streak argues, <coughs> defined as the institutional possibility of the unwashed reminding the washed of their existence, is still present at the national level. A little less globalisation will be all right if it gets us a little bit more democracy from the nation. A revivified national democracy is the solution to our ills. Theresa May's detailed programme on this view may be wrong, but the possibility that Brexit presents is real nonetheless, and we should get with the programme. That should be our starting point. Now, the rival view to Streaks is, of course, almost uh, diametrically opposite. It it starts from the sense that, that, that this view entirely misses the point. It may be true... This view says that the European Union has been too fragile in its response to the destructive power of capitalism. But the fundamental facts remain. 
facts like if the biggest danger that we face is from the global force of capitalism, so the most vital solution we require must reside at the global level too. Mass corporate tax avoidance cannot be avoided without agreement that transcends national boundary. Climate change cannot be overcome by nations acting alone. Intolerance and xenophobia cannot be challenged by a politics that returns to the parochial language of the nation, of identity, or of Volk. And so the argument rages. Many of you will have seen it uh, in the pages of the London Review of Books over the last few weeks between Wolfgang Streeck and Adam Tooze, tussling over the nature not of the problems that we face, but of the potential solutions we might aspire for. But it's not just on the pages of the LRB that we see this. We see it on the benches of the Houses of Parliament. Even though some of the MPs may not be aware of the intellectual roots of the argument, the row between a John MacDonnell and a Chukar Amuna is of the same nature. And the everyday conversations that I hear at the New Economics Foundation every day in our kitchen between young <laughs> activists and campaigners, some fighting to save the global order in the name of anti-racism, others fighting to restore the democratic power of the nation-state against what they see as their grave evils of TTIP, again, go back to this central dilemma. And as the question then put in its foremost, clearest sense is, what does the promised land look like? Democratic nation reborn or cosmopolitan harmony secured? And as the days pass and the clock ticks, my argument today is that we seem no closer to resolving that dispute. But as we're no closer to resolving it, as we continue to have that row, we're also left no closer to challenging the emerging new orthodoxy with an alternative of our own. No closer to being able to shape the negotiations that are just about to begin. No closer to being able to design new institutional settlements that will follow Britain's exit from the European Union. No closer to rising to the challenge of helping our fellow citizens to resist the poisonous pull of right-wing populism that our continent's seen before. To use the language of the day, all of this means, I believe, that there's no doubt about who's really in control. And it isn't those of us who start from where I start. Well, I know how I feel about all of this, but how do I think we should actually respond? There must, after all, I think, be something more productive than intellectual despair, or despair of any other sort. But there often seems that there isn't very much more on offer right now, especially at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> now, it's at times like this that I turn always to a different hero of mine, although someone I believe would have been of similar spirit to Clement Attlee, and someone I met in Oxford, and that's the philosopher Bernard Williams. Williams had a phrase that he liked, and one that was posthumously provided the, uh, the title to his collected essays on politics. The phrase was, in the beginning was the deed. For Williams, perhaps ironically for a philosopher, this was intended to remind us that in politics, working things out in your head, be it at three in the afternoon or three in the morning, is not the right place to start. Now, as anyone who has abandoned a guided tour of a museum or a great building and set out instead to explore it for themselves might know, you don't need to know the final destination of a journey in order to set out on what turns out to be the right direction. And it's that simple insight from Williams that provides, for me at least, the beginning of an answer to our contemporary problems. 
It's the desire to work everything out in advance, a desire which is deeply entrenched in the left right now and has a long heritage on the left also, which prevents us from making the start that we need to make. Not knowing what utopia looks like currently leaves us inert in the face of dystopia, left only to argue in seminar rooms. Not that there's anything wrong with that. (laughs) Or perhaps to prepare endlessly detailed PowerPoint presentations for the good burgers of Davos of an imaginary world to come that we have conjured from our own entirely self-indulgent fantasies. If anyone tells you that the solution lies in the fourth industrial revolution, you've met someone of that type. (laughs) So if we're going to act, we need to get over this hunt for the utopian. And in fact, I think the problem is worse than that. For I want to argue now that it's the very desire to pretend that if we know the big answers in advance, we can make progress. That desire itself, I think, is part of the cause of the larger political problem in the first place. That's a slightly complex idea, so let me dwell on it a little bit. For decades now, we've witnessed as a society the rise of what I want to call the theoretician. The theoretician is a very distinctive kind of expert. One who believes that the way to understand the world resides in abstraction, in stepping back from the hurly-burly, applying only pure reason to the problems that confront her or him. In this way, the theoretician believes we can rise above the everyday and begin to see larger patterns, future directions, clearer truths, noble goals are all available only to those who step out of the world as it is and think only about the world as it should be. Now, some of you who've been here in Oxford for many a year will have come across that in my own discipline. But in the 21st century, it's actually a tendency which is very widely dispersed. There are, I want to suggest, theorists, theoreticians of this kind in positions of power and authority just about everywhere and of all ideological hues, not just of the left. Sheldon Wolin, the American political philosopher who died last year, identified this trend just in the years previous to his death as one of the trends that he suggested might lead us towards a form of totalitarianism. His own quote was this. He said, The power of the theoretical mind is expressed in its steady expansion into new domains of life. The upshot is a world where mind is triumphant. Increasingly, our personal, familial, social, political, economic affairs are ministered by those who claim theoretical knowledge. Economists, psychologists, counsellors, sex therapists. There's even a theory, Wolin said, and he knew this for himself, that prescribes the correct manner of dying. (laughs) Mind reigns supreme everywhere incarnate and universal. And of one thing we must always be certain if they tell you otherwise, mind, the theoretician, is not at the end of its tether, for there is no tether. Now this kind of effort to secure theoretical knowledge, of course, brings many advantages. No one's against sex therapy. (laughs) But it also has serious downsides. And these downsides are particularly strong when it comes to the realm of politics, economics, society, or ethics. Because these are realms which, in fact, there are no answers available to us, 
purely by theoretical abstraction. Instead, they're realms where idealised agreement and absolute certainty should be acknowledged as impossible, not just as impossible, but as dangerous. They're realms in which we need experience to guide us, in which we need to respond to what's revealed to us slowly and painstakingly in the everyday, where, and this is the most important point, good character matters more than pure insight. And more than that, there are also realms in which everyone, all of us in this room, rightly believes we have a stake, whether we're skilled at theoretical thinking or not. What the economy looks like, what our politics look like, what our society looks like, what ethics to which we cleave, does not depend on the quality of our theoretical brain. And yet at the same time, as Wolin told us, these are the realms in which more and more people feel increasingly excluded. They have been relentlessly told that their views don't count, their knowledge isn't registered, because the theoreticians have already sorted it out. Wolin concluded, The tyranny of mind is the cruelest of tyrannies, for it brooks no appeal except to itself. Modern tyranny is the tyranny of abstraction. Now some of you will have guessed where this is going. Actually, I've got a page problem, so can I grab my phone? <laughs> Sorry, can you grab my coat? <laughs> I'm going to have to... My printer is broken, so the last part of text is on my screen. <laughs> so you'll either lose the text, or I will... <laughs> see, this is, this is the theoretician at work, see. People can test whether they really have guessed where it's going. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Someone did say, why haven't you flipped through the pages of your text before you start? (laughs) When Michael Gove launched his famous broadside against experts during the referendum campaign, much of what he was saying or implying was nonsense. But he got away with it because of this kernel of truth. Too few people feel as if they've been invited into the central discussion of our future as a country because they've been told they do not possess the requisite theoretical skills to join the debate. They feel excluded and irrelevant, and as a result, they are open to the siren calls of populism. If all of this is right, then the most important question to ask comes not from Attlee, but from a very different kind of leader of the left. The question is, what is to be done? And there are, I believe, two answers, one of which appears in the text and one of which is on the phone. (laughs) The first is a call to immediate action, not to secure some noble future goal, but to prevent immediate and very real harm. Populism is dangerous. It enables, indeed it encourages, one group of human beings to do horrific things to another group of human beings. We don't need an ideal theory, a fully-fledged account of the future of society or the economy, to know that. We have very real experience of it. And we don't need either such a theory as the spur to act. There are clear and present dangers all around us. And our very first task is to organise to mobilise, to campaign, and to prevent the starkest of those dangers. And let me suggest just some. The fundamental rules and norms that prescribe corruption need to be upheld. The right to vote itself needs to be secured. 
People thrown into detention centres need to have advocates. People subject to horrific abuse on the streets need to have protection. Disabled people need to feel as if all of the gains that they have made in the last two decades are not just thrown away. At that point, I am going to switch. Sorry, guys. Now we have a technical problem on this, too. So entertain yourselves whilst uh, (laughs) the excitement of the second turns out. Can we scrub this out on the the recorded version? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You can imagine that it was really, you know... It was really firing along at this point. (laughs) 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 See, if I was Ed Miliband at this point, I would just pretend that that section was never in it. We were finished there uh, with a rousing story about the Nazis. (laughs) So, this now is broken as well. I don't believe it. Oh, we're on. It is worth it. (laughs) Okay, here we go. Technology marvels. Okay. Disabled people need to feel as if the gains they have made in the last two decades are not immediately thrown away. Now, these are not exaggerations, and they are not easy fights. They will not be won without solidarity across party, solidarity against across background, across region, and across country. And most of all, they will not be won unless people give them the priority they deserve, which is why I start there, and why Bernard Williams reminded us that in the beginning was the deed. But second... We don't just need to protect what we have. We do also need to look to the future. Not having an ideal map or a perfect theory is not the same as having no map or no sense of direction at all. We cannot shelve the disputes that I mentioned earlier, the disputes between streak and twos. We need to know what kind of economic strategy we're meant to pursue. But we need to go about deciding it in an entirely new way. Rather than seeing the job of identifying future directions as the task of the lone theoretician or of the noble elite or of the technocratic expert, we need instead to commit ourselves to the task of generating a politics that places the responsibility and power to do that in people themselves. (coughs) And people seen in the round, not just in the isolation of the ballot box. If you'll permit me to quote Sheldon Wolin again, This work begins by recognising something about citizens. A citizen is, quote, a person whose existence is located in particular places and draws sustenance from circumscribed relationships, from family, friends, churches, neighbourhoods, workplaces, communities, cities and towns. And this fact about citizens matters because in politics, Wolin continues, it's these relationships which are the sources which truly political beings draw their power from. The power which is symbolic, material and psychological. It's those relationships which enable them to act together. People cannot combine or work things out or come to act without reference to who they are. 
without reference to where they come from, how they might relate to others. That's not theoretical, it's existential. And what it means is that we all need to strive to create a form of democratic power that bears the mark of its diverse origins. Family, school, church, workplace. Everything, Wolin concluded, turns on our ability to establish practices that do not distort the manifold origins of power. And what that means in practice, of course, is something akin to what's known as broad-based organising. A new politics for a new economy begins then by recognising difference, but then going on to forge direct, immediate and real relationships across difference so that people can begin to identify common goods and common experiences. (coughs) It will be an immensely hard task to create those opportunities in the frenzied era which we are just commencing. But it's absolutely essential if to rise to the challenges that that era presents. If we create a politics from any single group on their own, it will not be a politics that is capable of rising to the situation we find ourselves in. And new economics will only be developed by talking to those who reside in post-industrial communities and talking to those who reside in cosmopolitan elites. In fact, not just talking to them both, but in drawing them both together. It will be slow, it will be long, but it is essential. In 1904, Clement Attlee left University College. Hard thing to do. (laughs) He left it as a Conservative. Two years later, after a brief stint at the bar, Attlee moved to become the manager at Halebury House in Stepney, East London. Halebury House was a settlement house. It strived to look after the poorest in the local community and, most importantly, to bring people together from different backgrounds so that they could fight together against the deepest evils that Edwardian capitalism had thrown at them. Clement Attlee didn't stay a Conservative after that. In the decades that followed, he went on to fight fascism at home, help secure victory in the Second World War, and then build the welfare state. (coughs) My point today is not about Attlee's achievements. My point is that Attlee's origins story matters. Clement Attlee, as every good BPGSA will tell you, didn't become a socialist after reading Marx or even reading Mill. He became a socialist through experience. He brought about change, not from diktat on high, but through action. (coughs) And that's what I believe our own times demand as well. First, the action to protect that which is immediately at risk and which is of the greatest priority. And second, the forging of new relationships which have been rendered asunder during the last 20 or 30 years and from which we can only hope that a new solidarity builds a new economy. Now, some of you, this is my final thought, some of you might think that all of this seems too modest. We have lost our utopia. Surely, you'll say, we can dream. Surely we need to think about the nature of the promised land. Surely we need, in that time-old labour phrase, to be signposts, not weather vanes. Now, it's in response to that that I just want to close. I didn't make the argument I made today because I think we should be pragmatic 
or because I think we should tack to power, or because I think we should be dictated to by prevailing wind. Quite the opposite. I make the argument I make to you today because I believe deeply and profoundly in change. And because I believe that change has to be now on a scale larger than anything any of us have seen in our lifetimes. The post-war settlement is over. The liberal era in our economy is finished. A new era is going to be crafted, and it will be crafted by some of us, all of us, or by somebody else. But I believe that change starts through action and not through ideal (coughs) theory-making or theoretical speculation. And I believe change comes from the open invitation to everyone to be involved, not just a restriction to the already invited. And to try to explain that point finally, just a little bit more, a little bit more poetically perhaps, let me turn one final time to Sheldon Wolin, who put it like this over a decade ago now, and I quote, Nothing short of a revolution aimed at deconstituting the present structure of power makes much sense. It's illusory to believe either that the same mode of power that currently uses up humans, society and nature at a fearful rate can simply be turned around and trained in a more benign direction, or that the same human dispositions towards power, the disposition of passivity by the many and control by the few, will serve as well for a new order as it has for the older one. The task, Rowling concluded, is an enormous one, difficult, endless, because it is full of unknowns. That future might indeed be unknown, But it is, I want to argue, entirely necessary. Because the alternative, the known known, is only too apparent. Thanks very much.